One of my favorite academic stories is one that I cut out of the London Times some years ago when I was a research assistant to Dr. Billy Graham. It happens to be quite true. It's the story that 300 years ago, the Lucian professor of mathematics at Cambridge University did a distinctly unusual thing. He resigned his chair as professor of mathematics upon the condition that one of his students be immediately appointed to succeed him. In the light of subsequent history, no one could argue with his judgment because his student was Sir Isaac Newton. <laughs> the professor's name was Barrow and he was by 17th century standards a very good mathematician but not in a class with Isaac Newton. John Ellington is one of my students, and I'm not going to get your hopes up by resigning this morning to let John take over, but I certainly appreciated the good word which he brought to us about the meaning of the resurrection. John has a gift of capsuling things in a, a very good and unique way, and I think all of us were moved and blessed by that and by the inspiration of that prayer. Uh, we of the Montreal Church want to welcome those of you who are visitors with us today. We're very happy that you came to worship with us and hope whenever you are in Montreal that you will uh, be happy to come and uh, feel happy to come and worship with us again. Uh, I want to call your attention to the announcements that are in the bulletin and simply ask you to read those uh, and uh, pay attention to changes that may have been made in this afternoon and evening program. Are there any special announcements that need to be made from the floor? If not, then we will proceed by looking at John chapter 20 for our second lesson. John chapter 20, I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had already been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went and the other disciple, and as they were going to the tomb, the two of them were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter therefore also came following him and entered the tomb, and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not being with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. <clears throat> then entered in, therefore, the other disciple also, who had first come to the tomb, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead, so the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. As she wept, she stooped 
and looked into the tomb. And she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And now verse 30 in the same chapter. Many other signs therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Let's pray. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, the remarkable events of this day are so stupendous and so mind-boggling that only by the gracious help of the Holy Spirit can we even begin to touch the full meaning of their truth. But we pray that you will so touch us this day that no one shall leave this chapel nor hear these words who shall not be convinced that Jesus is alive and that because he lives we shall live also. And because of his resurrection those who sleep in Jesus will he bring with him when he comes in great power and glory. And we pray that you will help us in the power of this resurrected faith to live new lives in Christ that are worthy of him and faithful to him. We pray that the gifts which we have brought this day may be superintended and guided by the Holy Spirit to the goal and purpose of bringing honor to Jesus Christ and blessing and help to many. In his name, amen.
last week I cited from a book written by Malcolm Muggridge, the last and closing moments of the life of a great martyr in World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. After this service, Mrs. Shost, Helen Shost, whose husband and family suffered greatly under the occupation of both the Russians and the Nazis in Hungary, asked me about the book and wanted to read it. And she said, is this the same Malcolm Muggridge who was converted when he went to Russia as an atheist? And on an Easter Sunday, having thought that socialism and communism would be the answer to all of the world's need and there was no real need for God, had gone to a place where as only Muggridge can describe it in his extraordinary gift of the English language, he saw a group of factory workers with their El Greco faces, as he puts it, and saw the greeting, Christ is risen, and heard the response, He is risen indeed, and heard the words again, Christ is risen, and the shouted response, He is risen indeed, hallelujah. Mugridge walked away from the meeting saying that he knew that Stalin was defeated, that Christ was alive. Lenin had predicted that within two generations there would not be a vestige of religion left in all of Russia. Stalin made it his business to do everything that he could to exterminate the church. But what happened? In the providence of God, Svintlandia, Stalin, Stalin's own daughter has become a Christian and come to America. And if you had been asking for odds, you would have bet a billion to one that no one in Russia, like Solzhenitsyn, would have arisen on the scene to become the Nobel Prize winner in literature and then to declare unashamedly his faith in Jesus Christ, to give up all of the notoriety and prominence that he might have had there. Of course, he is in exile now in this country. But while he was still in Russia, he wrote a poem and one of the ways in which you can get poems circulated in Russia is to write something that is not approved by the government. Then everyone will read it. <laughs> they don't really expect to get the truth out of Pravda or Isvestia. And so they probably have more people reading their bestsellers by far than we have in the bestseller list of the New York Times. Solzhenitsyn wrote a poem. He called it simply Easter Poem. Listen, because the words bear more meaning than you will catch at first. How easy it is to live with you, O Lord. Where is he living? He is in Russia. He has been in a cancer ward in a Russian concentration camp. 
operated on and feverish to the point of death, persecuted, even though he had been a devout communist, but now he has become a believer, and what does he say? How easy it is to live with you, O Lord, even in Russia. How easy to believe in you, to believe in you when your freedoms are denied, when my spirit is overwhelmed within me, when even the keenest see no further than the night, and I know not what to do tomorrow, you bestow upon me certitude that you exist and are mindful of me and that all the paths of righteousness are not barred. The great Easter line that comes to us comes to us because of its personal faith. Early in the morning, while it was yet dark, Mary Magdalene, that one out of whom he cast seven demons, she is first to go there to the tomb. Like many of us, she is baffled and wonders who will move away the stone. The enormous stone it was there pushed in front of the tomb. And there she has a remarkable experience with Christ. Still dark, when she got there she saw that the stone had been rolled back in Matthew's account, we are told that an earthquake came and that an angel from God descended from heaven and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. And an old German friend of mine used to say, always tell the children on Easter Sunday that the angel laughed <laughs> because God had given great victory over death. Well, the accounts, of course, this was such a tremendous event that you're not going to get a strict harmony of events. That doesn't mean they cannot be harmonized, but it simply means that it's so big you can't take it all in. We can't to this day figure out what happened on the day President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas with all of our sophisticated electronic media and millions upon millions of dollars spent in research. Things that, uh, that happen that are so big simply boggle us tremendously. If you had here a tub of water and you took a huge stone and threw it into it, it splashes everything in all directions. It displaces things. And when a great huge event takes place, it does that. And that's one of the marks of the historicity of the event. It's not that everything is simply item by item and line by line exact detail. It was too big for that. You would be suspicious of it. If copiers had come along and said, well, there's a little discrepancy here, we'll put this here and this here and make it all alike. But this shows us the truth. And so she comes and sees that the stone had already been taken from the door. She ran back 
and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and she said to them, they have taken away the Lord. She assumed, she jumped to a conclusion, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. You see, she wasn't expecting to find him risen from the dead. She was expecting to go into the tomb and to find his body there. And when she saw that the stone was rolled away and he was not there, she thought someone had taken it away, that body. Peter therefore went and the other disciple and they run to the tomb and you know how tradition tells us that John is much younger and Peter is the older and John can run faster and John gets there first and John has a sense of reverence about him that does not allow him to enter right into the tomb and so he stops outside but when Peter gets there, Peter is impetuous and impulsive and he goes right into the tomb and he beholds the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been about his head. He sees that everything is orderly. There was no helter-skelter about it at all. But he's gone. Then entered in, therefore, the other disciple, that's John, who tells us that these things are written that we might believe. Who had first come to the tomb and he saw it and believed. Verse 9 of chapter 20 is very important. It's important when we study the appearance to the two on the road to Emmaus. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Part of our problem today is with all of our translations of the Bible, we do not read it and do not believe it. If we did, it makes a tremendous difference. And so the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb and beheld the two angels. She doesn't marvel at this. She is in such stunned shock at what's taken place. She is numb. The two angels are there and she sees one sitting at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been. And they speak to her, woman, why are you weeping? And then they ask the question, who are you seeking? She said, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there, but did not know that it was Jesus. There was something about his resurrected 
body that at first made it not easy for people to grasp who he was. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She must have been sobbing terribly. Whom are you seeking? And here is one of the greatest suppositions in all of history. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, and these words are so, so pitiful, if you have taken him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will come and take him away. Little tiny woman would come and take away his body. You see, she is overwhelmed with grief. And then we come to the point I wanted to make here. Jesus said to her, Mary. And then she turned to him in Hebrew and said, Rabboni, my teacher. Jesus knows his sheep by name. Salzanitzen was spoken to by a personal faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus came at the resurrection and he personally speaks to Mary. She must have clutched at his feet. And we know from the other accounts that his feet were nail scarred. She clutched at those feet and Jesus said, cease clinging to me. Cease clinging to me, Mary. Now later, when he reveals himself to Thomas, he will hold out his hand and say, touch my hand. Put your hand in my side and see that it is I. In this same gospel account, he will tell Thomas to touch him. But here he knows that this woman of faith has begun to grasp the truth that he is alive, but she must know that he will no longer be with her in the form of the past that he had been with her, but in a different way now. And so her grief is to be assuaged and to be soothed in another way. Cease clinging to me, Mary. Cease clinging to me, he says. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but he gives her a task. Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And she obeyed and said, I have seen the Lord. Now John in his testimony a moment ago told us about that ultimate protest of the young person when he was at the University of Wisconsin, life is not worth living. This personal appearance of Christ to each one of us tells us that life is worth living. This past week on Monday, a lovely little girl in our college was brought to my home. I was not well on Monday. Her father had just died at 58. We talked. Her personal faith in Christ was coming to the surface. 
she was going to make a trip to Florida to her family. She was wondering how it would be when she saw each one of them again and when they go through those things that you must go through at such a time as that. And here is where our personal faith in Christ speaks. Life will go on and life is worth living. This is what Jesus tells us, that he has victory and his victory is over death and pain. And he wants us to know it. When we come to the Lord's Supper as we did last Thursday night here, that's about as close to touching Jesus as you'll get. That's why I insist on people being reverent at the Lord's table. God forbid that you should be stupid enough to inflict upon your soul the judgment of God by not coming reverently to the holy table. This is my body broken for you. I used to love to watch that Church of Scotland minister take that crisp loaf of bread and say, this is my body broken. And when he tore it, you could hear it. If you're not touched by that, then you can't be touched by the pain of Christ. It's become boring to you. And you're better to leave it alone. But if you are touched by it and you know that the pain of Christ was offered for your sins, then you can face up to your ugly, damnable sins. And you can face up to death and know that God's love and forgiveness are there to heal you and that they're just as real as that bread that you touched. Jesus in that crowd, when that poor woman with the issue of blood touched him, Jesus said, who touched me? For he perceived that virtue had gone out of him and someone was healed. And his disciples said, Lord, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody is touching you. They're pushing up against you. And Jesus said, somebody touch me. A lot of people come to church. They go away with nothing having happened in their heart. But some of them touch him. And virtue goes out of him. And that person is healed and touched. The little girl with faith in Jesus Christ and tears in her eyes was touched. On Tuesday, I went to the hospital to see my old and dear friend of almost 30 full years now. A brilliant, brilliant physician. One of the best and brightest medical minds in all of this part of our state. He was coming out from under anesthesia and in his room from surgery. He said, it's melanoma. I'm not afraid to die. But he said, I hate to think of what I've got to put my family through or may have to put them through. Well, that's real. That's life. But what Jesus says that I am personal and I am with you in the midst of that. And if you really believe it, then you can really count on it. If it's just a dull habit, then there's nothing there. But if it's real faith, 
and it is for that Christian doctor. He knows that Jesus is with him and will be with him every step of the way. All he ever promised us was himself. I will never leave you. I love those words from Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Let your life be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have, for he hath promised, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The word from Ecclesiastes 2 are better than one, for if one falls down, the other shall lift him up, but woe to him who walks alone. We don't have to walk alone. He is personal and he walks with us. It's personal and how good it is. It's so good at the heart of the gospel is the goodness of God. The color on the pulpit is white today. That signifies peace. The lilies are white, signifying the goodness and the victory that God's peace has broken through to us to take away our sins, to make us white as snow in his presence, and to make us to know that we're forgiven and right if we want that grace. And thirdly, that it's a real event. He is alive. He is the Jesus of history. And he's real and present here today. Solzhenitsyn says in his poem, you bestow upon me certitude. You know what that means? You make me know that I exist and that there is meaning to my existence. That you exist and are mindful of me. You reaffirm the fact that life is good and that God has made me for a purpose and that that purpose is that I am reconciled unto him through Jesus Christ. How easy it is to believe, he says. This is the personal faith and it comes to us in this wonderful truth. Because I live, ye shall live also. In other words, because Christ lived, our sins have been forgiven. They're resolved. Solzhenitsyn is accurate not only theologically and expressing it in brilliant poetry, but profoundly powerful when he tells us that God has brought meaning to our existence and peace to our hearts. So what John Ellington said without our even knowing we were going to be on the same theme is this. It's personal, the resurrection, it's good, and it's real. And then go home this afternoon and read Colossians 3. If ye then be risen with Christ and keep your mind fixed on things above and not on the earth, for your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. So we put to death that old nature, 
and we live a new life of righteousness in Christ, keeping on bringing our lives into conformity with him. He's leading us, the ascended Christ. He's giving us directions for our existence. I'll never forget being in a whiteout over northern Canada in a jet airplane, uh, F-102, and having the control tower call in and tell us, the pilot piloting the airplane, how many miles we were from the airbase where we had to land, and then those cryptic, mysterious words that tense you up real quick, stand by for your final controller. And then he comes on and calls our name and says, do not acknowledge any further transmission. That means you're traveling so fast you don't have time to acknowledge it. And then he tells you what to do step by step, how much you drift to the right or to the left of your glide path when you're over the end of the runway and you obey him and you fall right down into place. That was a wonderful feeling. And God will one day bring us to heaven and home. But he wants us to obey our controller. Let us pray. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We thank you, O risen Christ, for your presence with us this day, and pray that the Holy Spirit who cleanses us from sin and who inspires us to follow you more faithfully may guide us to be good representatives of the risen Lord, honoring him in all our relationships. Help us, O Father, to be faithful to your great love and gifts to us. In Jesus' name.